Well, in case you were just a tiny bit slow on the uptake, uh, today is the Feast of the Holy Trinity, also known as Trinity Sunday. It's been celebrated in Western churches every year on the Sunday following Pentecost since the early 900s. J.I. Packer wrote this of the Trinity, and of course, being J.I. Packer, he relates it very closely to the gospel. He says, God is triune. We are, there are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Holy Spirit applying it. I have been um, meeting with a friend. First of all, I think I've told you that uh, I did not grow up or go to school with a particular appreciation for the Puritans, uh, the English Puritans or the American Puritans. And um, I think this was a mistake. I, reached, I missed a lot of richness in, um, in not paying more attention to what they were writing because they get to the heart of things very, very well. And in fact, I was meeting with a, a friend uh, on Wednesday mornings, and he suggested that we go through a book called The Valley of Vision, which I highly recommend. <laughs> it's nothing but a book of Puritan prayers. And so we were in ceremony coffee uh, on Wednesday morning, and we are reading these prayers to each other. And it's really quite an amazing experience. But the very first prayer in the book <laughs> is called The Trinity. And I, I think that it gets to the, it really cuts to the, the chase with what Jay Packer was doing. This is what it says, Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, I adore thee as one being, one, one essence, one God in three distinct persons for bringing sinners to thy knowledge and to thy kingdom. O Father, thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O oh, Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O oh, Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart and planted there eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited. So unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Oh, Father, thank thee. I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast given me Jesus to be his sheep, jewel, and portion. Oh, Jesus, I thank thee that in the fullness of grace thou hast accepted, espoused, and bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation, implanted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need, to supply words, to pray within me. 
to strengthen me that I faint not. O triune God who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for these things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name. I feel like we should also offer a prayer for whatever is going on back there. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it silently. Today we're just going to conduct a little bit of a high altitude survey of chapters 19 through 21 of Gentle and Lowly, looking at three passages in particular that mirror the heart of God the Father in, as J.A. Packer said, in purposing salvation or redemption. Not from the perspective of the Old Testament as we did when we looked at passages from Lamentations in Jeremiah a few weeks back, but from St. Paul's perspective in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, Galatians 3, 10 through 12, and Romans 5, 6 through 11. And you don't even need to turn to these. They are in your bulletin. So you can follow along as we go through those. My hope, my hope is just that we will encounter again the invincible work of the God behind the gospel, rich in mercy, lavish of heart, and enduring in steadfast love, moving ever toward sinners and sufferers like you and me. First, God is rich in mercy. Let's look at Ephesians 2, begin at, the, at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Don't we feel that spirit in the world today? Among whom we all live in the passions of our flesh. So just a couple of things here before we go farther. Christ did not come to mend wounded people, or wake sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur lazy people on, or to educate ignorant people. He came to raise the dead. To that end, Paul, a former Pharisee, includes himself in this. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We, and we can reject the heart of God as, as Paul did by following or by rejecting all the rules or as Paul did by following all the rules. We can be immoral dead people like some or we can be moral dead people like Paul. Either way, we're dead. But here's the hinge in verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love that phrase, rich in mercy. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan pastor, noted in 1640 that nowhere, nowhere in the Bible is God called rich in anything else. We're never told God is rich in wrath or rich in justice or rich in judgment. He is fully just, of course, and 100% in all his attributes. But the only place the Bible says he's rich in something, it says he's rich in mercy. He's not middle class in mercy. 
And it says God being rich in mercy, not becoming or at one time was being rich in mercy. This statement is unveiling an ana the animating center of God's being and nature for us. Good one again. He is the spring of all mercy. It is natural to him. It is his nature and disposition. Because when he shows mercy, he does it with his whole heart. This is why Micah wrote in Micah 7 and 18 that God delights in mercy. He's a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals that we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow, not lessen. How? Because mercy is who he is. His very character is mercy. If mercy were something he simply had, while his deepest character was something else, there'd be a limit on how much mercy that he could give. But he, he's essentially mercy, mercy at his core. Then for him to pour out mercy is simply for him to act in accord with who he is. It is simply for him to be God. It's his natural work. When God shows mercy, he's just acting in a way that's true to himself. This doesn't mean he's only merciful, by the way. He is also perfectly just and holy. He's rightly wrathful against sin and sinners. Following scriptures lead in how he talks about God, however. These, these attributes of, mor of moral standards do not reflect his deepest heart. Mercy does. And this passage goes on to unite God's rich and mercy nature with his great love. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God the Father's love isn't just forbearance or long-suffering or patience. Though God does forbear with us, his love is deeper and more active. His love is great because it pours out all the more when the one he loves is threatened even if threatened as a result of their own stupidity, which is great news for us. We can pretty easily understand this on a human level. Level, A good earthly father, father's love rises up within when he sees his child accused or afflicted, even if justly accused or deservingly afflicted. Affection just wells up. In him. And that's where mercy comes in. His, he loves us with an invincible love, and as love rises, mercy descends. Great love fills his heart, and rich mercy flows out of his heart. And God's mercy becomes real to us when we see that that river of mercy flowing out of his heart actually took shape as a man. The notion of God's mercy can seem abstract, but what if that mercy became something we could see, hear, and touch? That's precisely what happened in the Incarnation. So much so that when Paul speaks of the saving appearance of Christ, he says in Titus 2.11, when grace appeared, 
the grace and mercy of God is so bound up with and manifested in Jesus himself that for Paul to speak of Jesus appearing was to speak of grace appearing. Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs wrote, Christ is nothing but pure grace clothed, clothed with our nature. So when we look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, we're seeing what rich in mercy actually looks like. How rich in mercy talks. And how it ever unrelentingly moves toward sinners and sufferers. Jesus not only proved that God is rich in mercy by going to the cross and dying in our place to secure that mercy, which is what J.N. Hacker said. He also shows us how rich in mercy actually looks and speaks. So, God is rich in mercy. He's also lavish of heart. Dana Ortland begins chapter 20 of Gentle and Lowly with this. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of God or from the heart of God. You can live it for the smile of God or from it. For a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it. For your union with Christ or from it. You can try to earn all of these things, or you can simply receive them as a gift. But here's the problem. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says this, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. The ESV says all who rely on works, but in Greek it says something a little more nuanced and, and, and relevant to most of us. It says all who are of works. That our hearts can be of works hearts. But that's a curse. It's a, it's a one-way dead end. It's quixotic. It's tilting at windmills. How many more ways can I say it? That's the curse. Because once you start down that road, you're stuck. What Paul's doing is shining a light on the chronic temptation and tendency for many, if not most of us, to function out of a subtle belief that somehow our obedience strengthens the love of God. And he wrote Galatians to teach us that we are made right with God based only on what Christ has done, on, not on anything else. I cannot say it more simply than this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. To try, even subtly, to help the gospel is to lose the gospel. But the central weight of Galatians isn't about learning that for the first time in conversion, but about how easily our recidivistic hearts slip away from that reality as believers. Paul, Paul's perplexed question in Galatians 3.3 just before this is, having begun by the spirit of now being perfected by the flesh? Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on Galatians that its central message is that, is that the freeness of God's grace and love is not only the gateway, but also the pathway to Christian life. One of the things that Pilate's 
uh, like to say, and uh, airline pilots in particular, I know this because I've trained a bunch of them, and they say this, that it is always sunny where I work. <laughs> I mean, one of the great fun joys of, of teaching instrument students, especially when we do, is on a dreary, rainy day, maybe it's been raining for several days, getting in an airplane, flying up through the clouds, mm -hmm. and breaking out with the bright sunlight. Mm -hmm. Just being reminded that the sun's always there. Our sin darkens our feelings of God's gracious heart, but his heart for us cannot be diminished due to our sins any more than the sun's existence is threatened due to a passing few clouds or even an extended storm. The sun is shining. It can't stop. Clouds, no clouds. Sin, no sin. The tender heart of God is shining on you and me. God's is an unflappable affection. And the whole of the New Testament teaching is that it's the Son of God's heart in Christ, not the clouds of my sin, that now defines me. And the Christian life is the process of bringing my sense of self, my identity with a capital I, my churning internal anxiety, anxieties arising and anxieties arising out of that gospel deficit into alignment with the most fundamental truth. The gospel is the invitation to let the heart of God in Christ calm us into joy. I mean, we have already been discovered and we've been included and brought in to a God who is always glad to be with us. We sin, not just in the past, but in the present, and not only by our disobedience, but also by our of works obedience. But Paul implores us simply to bring all our up and down moral performance in subjection to the already settled reality of what Jesus actually feels about us. Even in, or especially in, our sin and suffering. So Orland ends chapter 20 of the book with this. By the way, if you don't have a copy, there are free copies on the table in the back. I would love for you to read this book. I do not get any kind of kickback on those. And <laughs> you can have it for free. <laughs> That'd be a pretty dumb business move, wouldn't it? <laughs> he writes this at the end of chapter 20. We are perversely resistant to letting Christ love us. But in the gospel, we are free to receive the comforts that are due us. Don't turn them off. Open the vent of your heart to the love of Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. Our law-ish hearts can relax in his lavish heart as it comes home to us. So God, rich in mercy and lavish of heart, lastly, his love endures. The passage that's reflected on in chapter 21 of the book is Romans 5, 6 through 11, where we read this. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received. Received. Reconciliation. You see the point? Time and time again in this message, we're told in so many words, look, the hardest part's been done, and Christ did it all. You have been, not might someday be when you finally crack the code and get it right, you have been reconciled, full stop. Have been is what the therefore of this passage is there for. Therefore, God is going to love you right through this world and into eternity. God loved us while we were his enemies. How much more can we be certain he's going to keep loving us now that we are his friends, indeed, his very sons and daughters? Really, in all these passages, God is confronting our chronic insistence that his love has an end point. That at some point, his heart for us is going to kind of run dry. As if God went into relationship with us with a prenup or an off-ramp of some kind, that if we continue to fail enough, they'll finally get fed up with us. When in fact the logic of Romans 5, especially later in this chapter, and flowing into Romans 6, is that every sin simply causes that stockpile of grace to grow all the more. Because he is, as it says in Ephesians 2, 4, rich in mercy. He's a billionaire in the currency of mercy, and our withdrawals don't make that fortune grow any less. They actually cause his fortune of mercy to grow all the more as it floods toward us. In describing the vastness of the love of God, Jonathan Edwards called it an ocean without shores or bottom. God's love and mercy toward his own is as boundless as God himself. This is why Paul speaks in Ephesians 3.18 of God's love in a reality that stretches to an immeasurable breadth and length and height and depth. The only thing in the universe as expansive and immeasurable as God's love is God himself. For God to cease to love his own, he would need to cease to exist because God doesn't simply have love. It says in 1 John 4, 16, he is love. And in the death of Christ for us sinners, God intends to put his love for us beyond question. Here's the bottom line. You are as secure in his love right now as you will be in eternity. 
We know that when we die and enter the nearer presence of Jesus, we'll be invincibly secure. But what Paul is saying is that we're that secure now. What will be different then is that we won't have sin to weigh us down. What will not be any different is our absolute security in him. Jesus Christ would have to be pulled down, and this is something that John Ortberg said, Jesus Christ would have to be pulled down out of heaven and put back in the grave for you ever to get kicked out of Christ's own heart. You're that secure. So we can spend the rest of our lives enjoying right now what, we'll, what we will enjoy in an unfiltered, unobstructed, and undiluted way in eternity. The very heart of God and of Christ. And let the reality of that envelop us. And watch your anxieties and jealousies and Resentments and bitterness wither and die as you bring them out into the light of the heart of Christ and of God, which is yours right now as much as it will ever be in heaven. I don't know about you, but I find this to be the greatest news in history. The end of chapter 21 is punctuated very powerfully with a quotation from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon that he preached in the mid-19th century. It's worth our hearing. It's, it's not long. Christ loved you before all worlds. Long ere the day, long ere the day star flung its ray across the darkness, before the wing of angel had flapped the unnavigated ether before aught of creation had struggled from the womb of nothingness. God, even our God, had set his heart upon all his children. Since that time, has he once swerved? Has he once turned aside, once changed? No! Ye who have tasted his love and know his grace will bear me witness that he has been a certain friend in uncertain circumstances. You have often left him. Has he ever left you? You have had many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? Has he ever turned away his heart and shut up his bowels of compassion? No, no, children of God, it is your solemn duty to say no. Thanks be to God. Amen.